Our great enemy today is secularism. It's the idea that nobody needs religion, that religion is a malevolent force, that the more people eschew religion, the happier they will be. So generally today, it is uncouth and not helpful for us to go after differences between us and other Christian churches. Christians need to band together for the sake of a positive view of religion, to show the difference that Christ makes in our lives. However, the readings today are exclusively about the papacy, and the papacy is what sets Catholicism apart. So we do have to talk today about the differences between us and other Christians. We do share a lot with other Christians. With all Christians, we share the belief in the divinity of Jesus. We share a belief and trust, hopefully, in the scriptures. With the Orthodox, we share a belief in the sacraments and in the hierarchy of the church. But only Catholics believe in the power and authority of the papacy. Every time there's been a split in Christianity, it comes because someone has rejected the papacy and its power and its authority. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, is the papacy divinely willed? Does God himself desire the papacy? Or is it a human institution that we can reject? Well, let's look to our gospel. Jesus says something really powerful and important in this gospel. He says, upon this rock I will build my church. The word church is used a lot in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's usually translated as assembly, not church. So you'll see this phrase in Exodus and in a lot of different books of the Bible. The assembly of the children of Israel. Well, when that was translated into Greek, the word they used was ekklesia. It's the ekklesia of the children of Israel. So you could equally translate that phrase in the Old Testament as the church of the children of Israel. It's the group of people who have been called out of the world to something holy. And so we see this word church a lot in the Old Testament. It's over and over and over again referring to the people that God has called out of the world to make his own. And then we see the word ecclesia a lot in the Acts of the Apostles, the story of the early Christian church, where God is calling people out of the world to follow his son. But we only see this word three times in the Gospels. All of them in the Gospel of Matthew. Not surprising, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. If they heard the word ecclesia, they would understand all of the Old Testament implications of that word. He only uses it three times. Twice is Matthew 18, where he tells people how to resolve a dispute amongst Christians. The last step being, bring the matter before the church. In this case, this being the assembly of believers. And the third time, the third time, and the only time this word is used in the Gospels is here, in Matthew 16. And Jesus says something really important. He says, my church. It is clear from this scripture that it was the will of Jesus that he would establish his church, his assembly, his community. So many of our Protestant brothers and sisters will say that the church, in quotes, is a human institution, that everybody was equal at the beginning of Christianity, and in the church, the group of people got too big and they needed a structure, and so it is a humanly created structure. 
that the church is somehow our invention. But Jesus is very clear. He is creating a church. He says, my church. He has in his mind the idea, in his earthly ministry, that he is creating something specific. In other scriptures, we see that he uses the apostles to lead his church. So not only is the idea of a church, his assembly, divinely willed, but the idea that that assembly would be under the headship of the apostles, that it would be run by the twelve, that is also divinely willed. He desires that it should be so. And so a church with a hierarchy is the will of God. And it's clear from the scriptures that this is true. But if this is the only place in the Gospels that Jesus is going to say, my church, we should pay very special attention to the context. Because if he's establishing his church, he's going to do so here. What does it look like? Well, he says, And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. His church is founded on something. It's founded on a rock. What is that rock? Well, we lose this in English. That rock is Peter. In Greek, it's the same word. Petras is the male version of that word, because he's talking to a guy, so he has to use the male version of the word. Petra is the grammatically correct version, which is feminine. But it's the same word. Petras, Petra. Jesus is saying, you are a rock, and on this rock I will build my church. So when Jesus, the only time Jesus talks about creating his church... It is intimately and irrevocably connected to the idea that Peter will be the rock on which the church is built. You cannot have the church of Jesus without also having Peter. It is clear from the scriptures. This is what the Lord was doing. Well, there are debates about the role of the apostles and the role of Peter. Some of our Protestant brothers and sisters will say that the apostles were a one-time thing. Jesus called the apostles only for the first generation of Christians. That their role was to jumpstart the gospel, to be the spark of preaching. And then when they died, the apostles would die. That there would be not apostles after them. Notice Jesus says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. This is another interesting word. The word key is only used twice in the entire Old Testament. One time it's a verb form, and it's used as sort of an analogy, like unlocking our hearts or unlocking our minds. So the only time it's used in the Old Testament as a noun, as a substantive, as something that you can touch and hold, an actual key, the only time it's used in the entire Old Testament is in our first reading, in that passage from Isaiah. Which means that Jesus, when he gives the keys to the kingdom of heaven to Peter, the only thing he could possibly have had in mind from the entire work of God with the Jewish people is what's going on in the book of Isaiah. Well, what's going on? The house of David had established a steward. If you've read Tolkien... There's the idea of a steward runs throughout. Tolkien did not come up with that idea. He got it straight here from Scripture. There's a steward of the house of David. 
What the steward did is he controlled access to the king. So the symbol of his office was the key to the house of David. We think of that as an analogy. It's not. He's the guy who physically had the key to the physical house of David. So if you wanted access to the king, if you wanted to know the mind of the king, the laws of the king, the opinion of the king, if you wanted the governance of the king, you had to go through the steward. And when the steward unlocked the door, nobody could lock it. And when the steward locked the door, nobody could unlock it. That was his role. So when Jesus is giving Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven, he's referencing this passage. Eliakim is given the keys to the house of David. Well, Jesus takes that and he elevates it to a heavenly idea. You, Peter, have the keys, just like the steward of the house of David. You have the keys, but not to the house of David. You have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Peter is not the head of the church. This is Jesus' church. He is the head of the church. He is the king. Jesus is Moses. Jesus is David. But Peter is the steward. So if somebody wants access to the king, to know the mind of the king, or the laws of the king, or the opinion of the king, or the governance of the king, that king is Jesus. But if they want access to the king of the kingdom of heaven, they go to the one with the key, who is Peter. Peter has been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus expands, you know, whatever you lock will be unlocked. He expands that to whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, far more than just a door being opened. He is binding and loosing our faith. The church is divinely willed. Jesus says, my church. The church is built on the rock of St. Peter. St. Peter gives us access to the king of the kingdom of heaven. But what is St. Peter really supposed to do? What does this office carry out? Go to the beginning of the gospel. What's the context? Jesus asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And there's a debate about it. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay, the apostles are providing a lot of different answers. They're saying, yeah, we don't know. There's this, there's that, there's, there's debate. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus confirms that by saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. This is the establishment of the papacy. So this exchange gives us information about what the papacy is supposed to do. Why would Jesus will this from the beginning? Jesus knew that the apostles and their successors, the bishops... I didn't make my point. <laughs> In the Isaiah reading, it's important that it's taken from Shebna and given to Eliakim, because it shows that it's an office. So when, when our Protestant brothers and sisters say that, that the apostles died and there were no more apostles, it's clear from the context of Isaiah that that's not true. There is an office of the steward, and that office of the steward is handed on to successive people and successive generations. It was taken from Shebna and given to Eliakim. When Peter died, it was given to Linus and Cletus and Clement and Sixtus and Cornelius. Yes, those are the first popes. We pray for them every Sunday. We pray for their intercessions every Sunday. Right? It was given to other men. The papacy is, a, is an office. 
that is stewarded by the current inhabitant of the office. Okay, so back to the exchange, the beginning of the gospel. Peter speaks up. Jesus confirms that he has spoken rightly, and it's not from flesh and blood. Jesus didn't create this out of... I'm sorry. Peter didn't create this out of his humanity. Instead, when there is a debate among the apostles, Peter steps in and resolves the debate. And the resolution of the debate does not come from flesh and blood. The resolution of the debate comes from the Heavenly Father. This is the foundational role of the papacy, to maintain unity in the church through the clarity of faith. When there is a debate among the bishops, the bishops hand on the faith. There will be debates about, okay, what does the scripture mean? Uh, you know, we have a deeper understanding of this teaching. Is this an accurate understanding? Bishops are going to fight. That happens. We shouldn't be scandalized. Jesus knew it was going to happen. Peter steps in, brings clarity from the mind of the Heavenly Father. That's his role. That's what he does. Again, like I mentioned at the beginning, every other group of Christians has splintered because they don't have an authority that they can go to. There's nobody who can resolve their debates. If I, individually, as Father Moore, am the authority of Scripture, and Father Ross says something other than I say, well, how do we resolve that? you got two priests, we share the same education. Like, what do we do? Well, Catholics, we go to the Pope, because we believe Jesus gave us the Pope as a gift, so that we would have unity in the Church. So that when there was a debate, the Pope could say, this is the mind of the Heavenly Father, this is what's going on. It's resolved, it's done, now we have unity. Every time there's been a split in Christianity, it's because the Pope resolved the debate, and then somebody rejected it. The Patriarch of Constantinople, as close as we are to the Orthodox, as much as we love them, rejected the authority of the papacy to resolve these kinds of debates. And then, of course, all of the Reformers, Martin Luther, to the face of the papal representative, Zwingli, all, everybody else, right? All of the Christian splinters. It's because they don't accept Matthew 16. They don't accept the fact that the Pope is a gift to the Church for the unity of the Church. A final point. But it's still probably going to take me like five minutes to make this point, so strap in. But a final point. As Catholics, we should be very good at making a distinction between the office and the man. If you've lived in the church for any length of time, you have dealt with multiple priests, and you don't always like your priests. Some of them you get along with, some of them you don't. But we still respect the office of the priesthood, even if we disagree with some of the human decisions that are made in it. This maintains still with the Pope. It's okay, it's not okay, but it fits with our theology if the Pope is a sinner. We've had plenty of sinful popes. It doesn't undercut what Jesus is doing here. Because Jesus gives the papacy to the church to provide unity to the bishops on matters of faith. So if the pope is out philandering, as the Medici popes did, does that threaten his ability to bring unity to the bishops? Well, sort of. People are going to listen less to a sinner. But no, it doesn't undercut his ability to bring unity to the bishops. If the Pope is making imprudent decisions, if he's appointing his nephew to be the Cardinal of Milan, 
which is, by the way, where we got a saint, St. Charles Borromeo. But if you're the papal nephew, which was sort of a thing that happened a lot in the Middle Ages, if you look corrupt, does that mean you've sacrificed the office of Peter? No. No, it doesn't. Because the office maintains. And insofar as the Pope acts in his capacity to bring unity to the Church by resolving theological debates, he is protected by the Holy Spirit. He's not protected by the Holy Spirit, and this is an annoyance that many young priests share right now, by the way. He's not protected by the Holy Spirit when he gives an interview on a plane. We're all sick of explaining what the Pope says on a plane. It's not defended by the Holy Spirit. He's just speaking as a theologian, and that's okay. It's when he resolves debates among the bishops. That's his role, where he's protected by the Holy Spirit. Which is to say, you don't have to like the Pope. You didn't have to like John Paul II. You didn't have to like Benedict. You don't have to like Francis. You can believe that these men who are human are making decisions that are good or that are bad. But when he becomes the representative of Peter, when he does the thing that Matthew 16 is telling him to do, when he says, we cannot have division in the church, we have to know the mind of God, and I am going to resolve this theological debate, we are all, as Catholics, bound to that. We have to listen. I think one of the most controversial examples of this, John Paul II, during his papacy, he resolved definitively, without question, the question of women's ordination to the priesthood. He said it's not possible. And in the document, he was very clear, I am acting as the successor to St. Peter, I am speaking on behalf of the, the permanent magisterium of the popes. He put in all the language to be clear, he was doing what Matthew 16 told him to do. He is bringing unity to the bishops, he's resolving the debate. What he binds on earth is bound on earth, and what, he, what is bound in heaven, and what he loses on earth is loosed in heaven. It's resolved, it's not a debatable thing. And we could go through the list of things that the popes have resolved. There are certain things that we are bound by as Catholics because the pope has spoken. However, we do have to respect the office. Even if you think that one pope or another made bad decisions in his human capacity, even if you think that it was wrong for the popes to have the papal states, for example, for a millennium, Right? Or if you think that, that you know, some of these papal speculations, they're like, oh, I really wish you wouldn't, like, say that, because now i got to go explain it away. Right? Fine. Whatever. But respect the office. We don't go around bad-mouthing the Pope, because he has an essential role in the Church. He has to do what the Lord has asked him to do. And if we as Catholics show disrespect for the papacy amongst ourselves, let alone with those outside the Church... Then when the Pope steps in to resolve a theological dispute, what respect will we have left for his office? Why would we get behind him when he's doing his job if we've been bad-mouthing him for a decade? It doesn't work. It's okay to disagree with a man, but it's not okay to speak glibly about the office. Finally. Let's say you don't think I've done good exegesis. Let's say you think the scriptural argument is... Bunk. I'll leave you with one last point. The American presidency has had a volleyball since Reagan, I'm pretty sure, called the Mexico City Policy. This is the idea, it's an executive order that says whether we are going to fund abortions overseas. So every president since Reagan has said we are not going to fund abortions overseas 
Um, every Republican president since Reagan has said we're not going to fund abortions overseas. Every Democratic president since Clinton has said that we will. And every time a president takes office, I think consistently on the first day that they're in office, Biden might have waited until the second day. But every time a president takes office after a president of the previous party was in office, they always reverse their predecessor, every single time, without fail. And it's going to keep happening because we continue to have funding for abortion and presidents have to decide where that funding goes, whether it goes overseas or not. That occurred over the course of what, 40 years since Reagan? The papacy has existed for 2,000 years and we have no examples of something like this. None, zip, nada, zilch, absolutely zero, huge goose egg, nothing. The papacy has never fallen into reversing itself on faith, ever, for 2,000 years. How have we not messed this up? I mean, we complain about decisions that our bishops make all the time. How has the papacy existed for 2,000 years and they haven't violated this principle where the Pope can, in fact, reveal to us the mind of God definitively. If he's revealing the mind of God, God can't change. So the papacy can't change its teachings. But you'd think somebody in 2,000 years would have been selfish enough or myopic enough to be like, oh, I hate that guy. Really don't like the guy who's ahead of me. I'm just going to undo everything he did. It's never happened. Because the papacy is divinely willed. It is a gift of God to the church. And if God gives us a gift, he is going to preserve the papacy himself. 